I said this in the first service, and I'll say it again. I thought to myself, maybe I should just come up and like read a passage and tell the band to come back. Because it was amazing, right? I think we need to give them a round of applause. Like, they faithfully lead us every Sunday, and uh, it's a blessing to have them. So good morning. Yesterday was a very important day, and if you don't know what yesterday was, we'll talk about that after. Yesterday was the 4th of July, and for us as Americans, it is a wonderful and beautiful day where we celebrate the Declaration of Independence. We celebrate the birth of our nation. And for me, when I think of 4th of July, I think of a few things. I think of fireworks, because you got to blow stuff up on the 4th of July. I think of red, white, and blue, because that's the colors of our country. I think of burgers and hot dogs. And when I think of hot dogs, I'll even eat the ones with the liver and the organs and all the weird stuff in there. I'll eat it all. That's classic. That's American. That's what I think of. I also think of the sun because I'm from South Florida and the 4th of July is always like insanely hot. So I also think of the beach and the pool because you can't be outside for more than 15 minutes unless you can go in water. And the last thing I think of is discount sales. You know what I'm talking about. You drive around, it's like, why is every business going out of business? How many mattresses can they sell today? I mean, this is unbelievable. 75% off everywhere. This is the 4th of July. But it is a wonderful day. It is a day that we are privileged to celebrate because as we heard this morning in the intro through Scott, we are celebrating rights and privileges that are basic to us as Americans. Freedom, independence, security, choice, All of these things are beautiful and incredible things that we are privileged to celebrate. And so today and yesterday and days forward, we should be proud and we should be grateful that we get to call ourselves Americans. And this morning, Jesus is going to take us and he's going to show us as disciples of Christ, because that's what we're called. He's going to say that there are a few basic rights and privileges that are part of who you are that are characteristics that you are to exhibit that should be foundational. And those are things like compassion, forgiveness, humility, faith. And just as we should be proud and grateful that we're Americans, we're going to be challenged this morning in God's word that we should be proud and grateful to be Christians. Because we are privileged to live a life of compassion and forgiveness, faith and humility. So before we jump into Luke 17... As we continue our study in the rhythm of grace, will you pray with me? Because this morning, there is a lot of stuff. And it's stuff that's easy to read and hard to live. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you very simply for this morning, for life, for liberty. And liberty not only in our country, Lord, but liberty with you. That you have freed us, that you have forgiven us, that you have shown us compassion And we pray this morning that you would open our minds and our hearts, not just to hear, but to know that through faith and through your spirit, we can live as disciples. We can live faithful. Help us to hear that. Help us to see that. Help us to live that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, as if you were here last week in Luke 16, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, the self-identified religious leaders. And this week, he's going to turn his focus, and he's going to look at the disciples. And so when Jesus especially looks at the disciples, he looks at us, because we are disciples of Christ. And he's going to say something very simple. He's going to say, you know the Pharisees. Don't act like them. Don't be like them. The Pharisees were judgmental. 
the Pharisees lack compassion. The Pharisees put up rules and regulations and ritual cleansing laws and all of these things that you had to uphold. And if you didn't, you were barred from community. You were barred from relationship. You were deemed unclean. And then you had to do all of these things to earn your way back into not only their favor, but God's favor. So not only were they lacking compassion, but they were also lacking forgiveness because if you did not meet their standards, they wouldn't even have a meal with you. They wouldn't touch you. They wouldn't talk to you. And if you were marginalized, if you were poor, if you were oppressed, if you were disabled, if you were afflicted and struggling in any way, they viewed that as something you deserved. And so you don't deserve forgiveness and compassion because you must have done something that warranted that state that you live in. And so Jesus is going to look at us as he looked at the disciples and he's going to say, don't look like that at all. And here's what he says, starting in verse one, he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The question here as you read this and as you spend time in personal worship is what is little ones? Because immediately when we hear little ones, we think maybe it's talking about children. Or maybe when we look at this passage, we think of other passages that are similar, like Romans 14 that talks about restricting behavior. It says God has given you freedom, freedom to live. But there are times where it's wise to restrict your behavior because you may, as it says, undo good works of God that have been done. So an example is there are times where you may want to refrain from drinking alcohol because the person that you're with struggles with alcohol or is highly offended by it. Or maybe you don't want to bring a slab of beef to a vegetarian's birthday party. These are things not to do. And this, for all of you that are sitting here and you're getting really nervous because you're like, is this whole sermon going to be about restricting behavior? That's Romans 14. So when we get there, we'll talk about it. But this morning, Jesus isn't talking about restricting behavior. He's actually talking about what does your behavior look like towards this group of people that he calls little ones. And little ones doesn't just mean children. And when we look at the whole of this, Jesus is speaking about a set of people. He's speaking about the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the disabled, the afflicted, anyone pertaining to a low or an unimportant status. It relates to Matthew 25, where Jesus says, love the least of these. What you do the least of these, you do unto me. It's the same idea here with little ones. It is those that are, whether they have self-identified or been identified as pertaining to a low or unimportant status. And Jesus says here, listen, you are to be compassionate and merciful and hospitable to anyone and everyone that falls into that category. When God puts someone in your path, in your life, and you're given opportunity to show compassion to the little ones, those that are struggling and stumbling, you are to show hospitality, you are to show compassion, you are to show mercy. And he's so serious about this that he says, if you aren't like that, if your mindset is not that and you don't live that way, it would be better for you to right now go find a large stone, a millstone, put it around your neck and jump in the ocean. I mean, Jesus is serious. 
It's one thing Jesus can never be debated on is that he is very, very serious about caring for the needy. He's very serious about compassion. And as I said, he's looking at the disciples and he's wanting them to identify as someone and as people that are different from the Pharisees. And so he says, you know the Pharisees. They look at the little ones, the poor and the marginalized, the afflicted, the struggling, and they show no compassion. They show no mercy and they outcast them because they think their state is deserved. Like last week with the rich man who had Lazarus living outside of his gates his whole life and he never did one thing. He never lifted a finger to show compassion to him. He says, you know the state, you know the judgment that went to the rich man. A better judgment would be for you to put a big stone around your neck and jump in the ocean than to be like that rich man, to be like the Pharisees who ignore the poor and the struggling and the stumbling, the little ones. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, okay, am I compassionate like that? Or am I conditionally compassionate? And I began to think, and I I thought to myself, it is really easy for me, maybe you identify with this, it's really easy to elevate yourself over another. It's very easy for us as Americans to do it for those that are outside of our country because we just, maybe we presume that they just don't get it or they're continually perpetuating problems. And that's wrong and we should never think like that. But when it really hits home is when we realize that we do it about people and we think that way towards people in our city, in our country. Because here's what we think I think we presume that living in the land of opportunity presents equal opportunity for all. And so what happens is we begin to think this way. We begin to think, I don't understand how somebody in America could be homeless or poor. I mean, they're given every chance, every opportunity, and they must have squandered it somehow. They must have done something to deserve that state, that low an unimportant status. And so maybe we begin to think that we'll withhold compassion or mercy or hospitality or care because they'll either they deserve it or maybe they'll even squander our compassion. And so we begin to, though we'll never say it, we begin to elevate ourselves and treat others that are struggling and stumbling and oppressed and afflicted as if they deserve it. We're pharisaical. In that sense. And Jesus is going to say here very clearly, and we could talk about this for a long time because it's a very complicated issue, and I recognize that, but so we're not here till midnight. And so we can save some political posturing because that's what we do with this issue. Jesus is very clear to us as disciples. He says, We have no right to ever withhold compassion to those that are in need. We're not given that right. Now, it does mean that compassion comes with wisdom, and compassion comes in multiple forms, right? Compassion looks like the Rio house, and many of you are familiar with that. It looks like the Grace house that we are implementing in Haiti. It looks like going on a mission trip, but compassion also looks like having a conversation, sharing a meal, sponsoring a child, giving money. Compassion looks like foster care. It looks like praying with or for somebody, and compassion can be simply listening to someone. 
It comes in multiple forms, but we're never given the right to withhold it because Jesus isn't concerned with our behavior and our actions, and we're going to see that. He's concerned with our heart. He's concerned with our mind, our mindset, the way that we view other people because the Pharisees viewed themselves as above others. And so they had the right to withhold compassion or forgiveness or whatever they deemed. And Jesus says, you identify with those from a low and unimportant status. And when God puts them at your gate, he puts them in your life, you show compassion. And he says, it's not simply that easy that you can just look at the world and you can look at people and you can know that you're to live compassionately. He gets something that for me is probably even harder. He says, now you got to look inside, look in your church, look in your community and ask yourself if not only are you being someone who's lacking compassion, but are you lacking forgiveness? Are you obstructing people from restoring a right relationship in the community of faith because you're unwilling to forgive? And he says this in verses three and four, pay attention to yourselves, meaning look inwards. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive. Jesus is fairly straightforward here. He says, if someone sins, you're to confront them. Whether or not you're confrontational, you confront them. You share with them how you feel. If they repent, meaning if they ask for forgiveness, that's the only condition you forgive. And it seems fairly straightforward, fairly easy, except for the third component, where Jesus says, Even if someone sins against you seven times in a day, which is probably every meaningful interaction you would have with another human, and they sin against you, and they ask for forgiveness, you forgive. That's where it gets tough. Because we want to withhold forgiveness and put conditions on it. Maybe we think, I'll forgive someone when I know they really get it. Or when I know they're broken, or I know they're changing, or when I look at their repentance and I know that they're actually trying to not do it anymore, or act like that way, or speak that way anymore, and then I'll forgive them. But Jesus says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, which would look like they're not very repentant, if they ask for forgiveness, you forgive. And that's hard, but it shouldn't be. And it's hard for me, and I know it's hard for you, but it shouldn't because we have to ask ourselves, who are we to withhold forgiveness? We are the most forgiven people in the world. How many times a day do you sin against God? Because if you're like me, it's way more than seven. It's way more, and that's what I know. And yet God, who is perfect and holy, and as we have been singing, a good, good father, he is perfectly just to withhold forgiveness from us. And yet he says he forgives everything past, present, and future. He forgives hundreds of sin a day. And he knows that we're not very repentant. And yet he forgives. So who are we to ever withhold forgiveness? That's a hard thing to swallow. The church, Jesus is saying, the disciples of Christ are to be people that are compassionate towards everyone in their path. And they are to recognize themselves as constant sinners needing repentance. And so when constant sinners needing repentance want to be a part of the community, it's like, hey, I'm just like you. Come on in. We're all the same here. 
And Jesus goes on and he says something to his disciples that's hard. Because if you're like me, you think to yourself, okay, I'm not compassionate like that. I'm not forgiving like that. And now that I've been in Luke for 17 chapters, Jesus has been constantly drilling home compassion, forgiveness, humility, love. And I continually leave feeling inadequate and not able And like, I could never be like that. And so the disciples respond to Jesus because they're feeling the same way. They, They resonate with us. They're humans. They're looking at Jesus and they're like, I am not faithful like that. I am not forgiving. I put conditions on it. I'm not compassionate. Jesus, we're kind of like the Pharisees in that sense. And so they say, Jesus, give us faith. Here's what they says in verse five and six. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. See, the disciples look to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're not like this. We want to be, but we're not. So you need to give us more faith. We're about right here. You need to give us about that much faith, faith we think, and then we can actually be compassionate and forgiving. And Jesus looks at us and he says, you don't get it. It's not about more or less faith. We think it is. We think that being faithful and being a true disciple of Christ that's compassionate and forgiving, that person that lives like that must be like crazy amount of faith. Jesus says, even the tiniest amount of faith, like that of a mustard seed, you can barely see it, can do the unimaginable. Faith like that can command something that doesn't typically receive commands can command it to move and it'll move. It can command a tree that's in the land to, I don't know if they crawl on the roots or they jump, but go into the ocean. Mustard seed faith can do that. And we look at that and we say, yeah, right. (laughs) Right? Because we think two things in regards to faith that I think are wrong. Faith is kind of seen two ways as Christians. One, faith in God. Baseline, foundational We're here today because either we have faith and we believe that God exists, we believe in his gospel, we believe in his word, we believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, or you're here searching that out. But the second level of faith is faith in God's ability, where we have faith that God can do something. He can change a heart, change a life, change behavior. He can use us with all of our skills or maybe lack thereof to do something great. It's faith in God's ability to do something. And that second level is where we struggle because maybe we think, I don't have what it takes to do something great. So we devalue ourselves. And in the process, what we do is we devalue God because we think, I could never be a disciple like that. Or I could never be like that man or that woman. They're incredible. I could never lead a Bible study or a community group. I could never really clearly communicate anything biblical. I could never share the gospel with my friends or my coworkers because I just don't think I can do it well. I could never serve like that. I could never sacrifice like that. I don't think God will ever use me for anything great. And so what we do is we create a self-fulfilling prophecy of mediocrity. And Jesus comes to us and he says, even less than mediocre faith, faith like a mustard seed, can do the unimaginable. And we think, yeah, right. We would never say that because we know it's the wrong answer, but we kind of think, yeah, right. And the other problem is not only do we devalue ourselves, 
but we have a wrong definition of greatness. We think greatness means writing a book, selling millions of copies, and being interviewed by the New York Times. Or greatness means we're going to be known in every church all over the world, or at least our ministry will. Or we think greatness means hundreds of thousands of people will be changed. And so we don't think we can ever reach that level. I want to give you a hypothetical. There's two people. One of this, one person is seeking to be a faithful disciple of Christ. They're seeking to be compassionate and forgiving and to have faith that God can do great things. And they're feeling a little bit spiritually bankrupt. So they decide to board, board a mercy ship. I'm going to bring their camera and they're going to photograph what it's like for this ship and these people to give free medical care to people in Africa. And so this man goes on the trip and he begins to document it. And when he gets home from this mission trip of sorts, he's changed. His life has changed. His mind has changed. Everything's changed. And what was so powerful to him was that the root cause of all of these diseases was a lack of clean water. And so he thought to himself, I can do at least something. And so there was one village that he really resonated with. And so he decided that he was going to raise some money to go put a well in this village. This man's name is Scott Harrison. He's the founder of Charity Water. Currently, there's 16,000 plus wells that have been funded through this organization. 5.2 million people are receiving clean water that previously didn't have access to clean water. And hundreds of thousands of people have come to see and experience the compassion of the gospel and have come to be changed in terms of their relationship with God. And we think, wow, that's greatness. But there's another man who lives in Philadelphia, and he's a banker. He's a disciple of Christ, and he wants to live compassionately. He doesn't want to discriminate. He doesn't want to be someone that is not forgiving. He cares about his city and the needs of his city, and he's broken over all the suffering and struggle. He's a leader in his church. He's seen God in his life move him to different ministries, and he's served with them in various levels. He has friends that are Christians and non-Christians, and he's tried to share the gospel hundreds of times with his words and with his actions, but he's only seen one person in his life come to Christ. Who's greater? Whose life is great? Who's a better disciple? Because we know the Sunday school answer is they're equal, that God loves them both and is pleased with both of them, but do we really believe it? Because when we define greatness we define it by results. God defines greatness by faithfulness. It's a big difference between results and faithfulness. And Jesus makes this very clear. In Matthew 25, he gives us this story. I want you to imagine it. He says, suppose there's a master and he has three servants and he's going to leave. He's going on a trip and he's going to come back and he goes to the three servants. He says, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you five talents. I'm going to give you two and I'm going to give you one. I'm going to leave when I come back, let's see what you do with what I've given you. So the man with five says, I need to invest this. So he invests it and he uses it. He makes a five ten. The man that has two says, I'm going to use this. And he uses the two and he makes it into four. And the man who has one says, I don't have enough. I don't have what it takes. I only have one talent. And so instead of losing it, instead of messing it up, I'm going to dig a hole and I'm going to bury it. So that when the master comes back, at least I can give him the one talent back. 
And the master returns and the man with five talents shares with him the story of how he used it. And the master looks at the man with five talents who made it into 10 and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I've put you over little, now I will put you over much. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. And then he looks at the man with two talents who's made it into four. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The same exact thing. Then he comes to the man who has one talent and the man with one talent says, I knew you were a hard man and I was really nervous. I didn't want to waste it. I didn't want to mess it up. So I just dug a hole and put it in there. And now here it's back. I know it's yours. Take it back. It says the master looks at him and says, you wicked and slothful servant. You should have invested it. That is such a convicting thing for me and for all of us. Because what Jesus is saying is the master isn't concerned with how much you produce. He's concerned that you are faithful with what you've been given. We've all been given a lot of things. A lot of gifts and abilities and skills and positions and family members and places in the community and whether we recognize it or not. And it's not about whether or not you have what Scott Harrison has to give clean water to 5.2 million people or whether you're the banker in Philadelphia. God doesn't, isn't concerned with what you produce. He's concerned with are you faithful? Do you believe that God can use you to do great things, even if it's just for one person? Because at the end of the day, regardless of what you produce, when you're faithful, you receive the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. And as we hear these things, and as we think, and we should be excited to know God's called us to be compassionate and forgiving, and he's also given us faith that makes all of those things and more possible Jesus roots us and to keep us humble. And he says this in verse 7 through 10. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. So why does Jesus jump from speaking about the power of faith and the ability for God to do great things through you regardless of how many gifts you think you have? Why does he jump from that to the story about unworthy servants? And it's important for us as contemporary readers to make sure that we don't miss the point because we don't understand this context and the culture. We read slavery or servitude in the Bible and we immediately think chattel slavery, which was sadly what was a part of our country, which is race-based, founded on kidnapping, and where the servant and the slave is treated as property of the master. This is not the norm. This is not what the Bible speaks of in terms of servitude and slavery. It's more indentured servitude, voluntary servitude, where somebody would come to a master, someone that owns property, and say, I want to, for a set period of years, I want to commit myself to you to perform these daily tasks, and after the seven or ten years, which was typical, they would regain their freedom, and they'd actually be paid the entire time. And the goal was, at the end of seven or ten years, they would have accumulated enough money for them, for they themselves to go buy their own farm. And then hire their own workers. And even slaves at times would own other slaves. And this was how the economy functioned. This was more of a boss-employee relationship. It wasn't 
the way that we identify it. So Jesus isn't somehow promoting slavery like we think it. He's talking about a boss and employee relationship. And he says very simply, is it appropriate for an employee to seek and to demand rewards and praise for doing things that are very basic to their job? Is that appropriate? And so the translation is, he looks at his disciples and he says, when you go out and you seek to live a life that's compassionate for those in need, and that when you go out to seek to be forgiving, and when you go out to trust that God's going to use you for great things, don't begin to puff yourself up and to think that people need to praise you and you need to receive extra rewards because we're unworthy servants that have been privileged to live for our master. And these things that we do are basic to a Christian. Compassion and forgiveness and trust that God can do great things for us. And some of you are sitting here and you're saying, Amen. And some of you, they're on the more critical side, and that's where I identify too, are saying, Oh, I understand that, but I don't feel comfortable when it seems like God is demanding me to do something or to serve Him or to live a certain way. It feels uncomfortable. And that's why Luke gives us this story of the lepers to close. He says in verse 11, On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and he met ten lepers. He met ten little ones, oppressed, afflicted, outcasted, who stood at a distance, and they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Show us compassion. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You see, Luke is saying that we as disciples of Christ have called to be compassionate, we've called to be forgiving, and we've called, been called to trust God that regardless of where we think our level of faith is, that God can use us for great things. And as we humbly realize that we're unworthy servants and this is baseline activity, don't forget who your master is because he is for you what you've been called to be for others. Your master, your savior, is the most compassionate, is the most forgiving When little ones, when those that are needy come to him, seeking forgiveness, seeking mercy, seeking healing, he distributes it. And he doesn't just show compassion in the physical sense. He shows compassion by healing. He looks at this leper that he has healed, that is a Samaritan, meaning this man is at odds with who he is as a Jew. An enemy, if you will. He not only shows this enemy compassion, but he forgives him and he welcomes him into the community of faith where he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And I think what Luke is doing here is he's trying to help us identify with the leper. Because this leper, I have to imagine that this leper's life was radically different. And not just because he no longer had leprosy, but because he met and he found compassion and forgiveness that's like no other 
And I got to believe that this leper sought to live a life that was compassionate and forgiving of others, regardless of whether they were Samaritans or Jews. And I think Luke is telling us, we are the lepers. We are the little ones. We are those in need who have come to our God and said, God, I need you. I need you to heal me. And he's responded with compassion and with forgiveness. As we saw last week, our God is just, but he's not just just. He is merciful and forgiving and compassionate to anyone who comes to him. And so he looks at us and he says, you were a leper, you were a little one, and I have cleansed you and I have healed you and I have showed you compassion. So do likewise for others. You see this time and time again, the apostle Peter denies Christ three times and then Christ comes, shows him compassion and forgives him. Peter's life has changed forever. And then he goes and seeks to live the gospel and dies a martyr's death. We look at Scott Harrison, founder of Charity Water. He identified that his God is compassionate and forgiving and it changed his life to where he wants to be compassionate and forgiving. The man in Philadelphia is the same and we are the same. When we realize that we are lepers but we've been cleansed, it does something inside of us. Because we've not only been cleansed, we've been sent. And Jesus says we have been sent as lepers to heal other lepers, to show compassion and mercy and forgiveness to everyone that God puts in our path. And to never for a second doubt that God can use us for great things, regardless of where we think our faith is, regardless of how many gifts we think we have. And that's what it means to be a disciple. So in that spirit, let's pray. And let's leave this place knowing that our God has sent us with all ability and power to be compassionate and forgiving to others. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you are gracious. You are a good, good father. Lord, at times we are faithless. We doubt your ability We don't think we could ever be compassionate like that or forgiving like that. So we don't think we have what it takes, but it's not about what we have. It's about what you have and what you've given us, which is your spirit. You've made each one of us unique and you've put us in the place in life that you want us to be. And you've called us to use what we have, whether we have five talents, two or one. And that one day, Lord, as we seek to be faithful, because greatness is faithfulness, when we seek to be faithful, Lord, knowing that we are lepers, you will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to live for that day, to long for that day, to live in that reality, humbly, feeling privileged that we are called in a basic level to be compassionate, forgiving, faithful, and humble. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.